Hello, everyone, and welcome to Bible Quest TV. Uh, this is the Wednesday edition of our show, and we're thankful that you're on here to join us this afternoon. Um, if everyone wants to, they can go ahead and be getting out a Bible or get into your favorite Bible app and turn over to a Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews 11 is where we're going to be uh, for our time this afternoon. Joining me today, we've got Joe Works in Elmira, New York. Hey, Joe, how's it going today? Hello, Chase. I'm just fine. Yourself? Doing well, doing good. And we've also got uh, Jeff Smelser joining us from Exton, Pennsylvania. Or is it Extonburg, Pennsylvania? Exton, Pennsylvania will do fine. Oh, it's just Exton, yeah. Pennsylvania? Okay. Okay. That, I guess that makes sense. Yeah. But, you know, uh, it's if somebody's coming in for the first time, they have no idea what the story behind that is, but maybe we won't tell them. <laughs> that means they just have to listen to all the previous ones <laughs> just to get the joke well they'll get it in the first 30 seconds of whichever one they look on to so <laughs> that works out uh well it's good to have you guys on today um we're going to be talking about hebrews 11 i don't know about y'all but this is i would say one of the most popular chapters in the bible um, a lot of people know hebrews 11 we call it the roll call of faith or the the faith hall of fame sometimes you know, it's it's just a really popular chapter, and I think for good reason. But uh, my goal this afternoon, everyone, is to just, for me, Joe, and Jeff, to just walk through the text, pull out some lessons about faith. But we want to end the lesson by talking about how all of these characters point to Jesus. We take the time in Hebrews 11 to consider these characters and the wonderful faith. But chapter 12 points out that all of them in a much greater way point to Jesus Christ. And I think that's a really beautiful message. So that's what we're going to be talking about. Um, any other opening comments, guys, before we get started? Go to it. All right. So in Hebrews 11. Oh, did Joe have a comment? No, no, no. I said I'm, I'm looking forward to it. Oh, okay. Okay, good deal. Well, good. That's actually a good lead into because faith is forward looking. And that's what we learn in Hebrews 11. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, before we get into chapter 11 specifically, one of my favorite things to do anytime you come to like one of those popular Bible passages is to look at the context, uh, try and figure out what is the writer doing? Of course, we're not exactly sure who the Hebrew writer was, but he very clearly had logic in his writing. Uh, you look at some of the other writers in the New Testament, all of them have wonderful things to write. Sometimes it can be hard to nail down exactly where they're going with things. But the Hebrew writer, he, he is a very good thinker. I see his logic. I've always seen the book of Hebrews as almost a series of sermons that are being presented. And at this point in Hebrews, uh, he's already convinced them that Jesus Christ is better. He's better than Moses. He's better than the angels. The old law is, is not as uh, superior as Jesus is. Jesus is far superior than the old law, and he's given a lot of reasons why. And as he's winding down his letter here, he is going to give them what is maybe the third or fourth admonition to not fall away from God, but to stay strong in their faith, to stay committed to Jesus, and to not turn their backs on him. And the last time he does it is at the end of chapter 10, actually. Chapter 10, uh, really, in verses 26 and on, he will give them that final admonition of hanging on tight. And I want us to just read verses 32 through 39 to get this context in. The Hebrew writer says, but remember the former days when after being enlightened, you endured a great conflict of sufferings, partly by being made a public spectacle through reproaches and tribulations, and partly by becoming sharers with those who were so treated. You showed sympathy to the prisoners 
and accepted joyfully the seizure of your property, knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession and a lasting one. We'll stop there. He's saying, guys, you all have already been through a lot. There have been persecutions you have faced in the past. This quite possibly could be the Jerusalem Christians that he's writing to. Um, and we know that they went through persecution back in Acts 8. But you all have been through this type of thing before. And when you did, you hung on tight because you knew you had a better possession waiting for you. And so now he circles back around in verse 35. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. You have need of endurance so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what was promised. For yet in a very little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. We are not of those who shrink back to destruction. We are of those who have faith to the preserving of the soul. I don't know what tone you all take the end of chapter 10 in, but I think about a military commander as I read that. We're not the type of people that shrink back, y'all. We hang on tight. You've done it before, and you can do it now. He quotes from Habakkuk 2 there in verses 37 and 38. But I, I want to put that backdrop there for Hebrews 11, because who is the Hebrew writer predominantly writing to, Jews or Gentiles? He's writing to Jewish Christians. I think you're right. And in chapter 11, he's going to go into the history of, Jew, of the Jewish people, and he's going to go over some things that they likely already know. But considering his last statement in verse 39, we are not of those who shrink back to destruction, he gets into a huge conversation on example of their ancestors who did not shrink back to destruction. It's kind of interesting because here you have this, we are not of them that shrink back unto perdition, but of them that have faith unto the saving of the soul. Earlier in the letter, he had started out turning back to the Old Testament for an example of people who did shrink back, who did not yeah. Under the saving of the soul. Back in chapter 3, for example, verse 12, he warned them, Take heed, brethren, lest happily there shall be in any one of you an evil heart of unbelief in falling away from the living God, and went on to talk about the Israelites in the wilderness who did lack faith and for that reason uh, did not enter into the promised land, did not enter into the rest that God had prepared for them. So now what he's going to do, he's going to express more confidence in his readers than that. And as you say, he's going to turn back to the Old Testament now to some other examples. And this time it's going to be positive examples, people who demonstrated faith. Yes, I'd never thought about that with the connection back to chapter three. And, uh, you know, don't be like the Israelites who fell short in the wilderness. Very good point. Uh, Joe, anything else before we, we dig into the chapter? No, just the, the language there from 32, you were illuminated, 35, confidence, 36, done the will of God. And then as you emphasized, believing to the saving of the soul, 39, um, extremely upbeat. I, I, lacked, uh, I, I, I lacked your reference, uh, reference there to the, the sort of the military commander. Um, uh, evidently, he was Southern. He had a Southern accent when he said to all. <laughs> um, but, uh, but I think that that's a, a good point. Um, this really is uh, the Hebrew writers seeking to end, not just on like a positive note, but on a note of hope, as we'll talk about, um, uh, sort of like the book of Revelation, emphasizing you can overcome even all these different adversities. Yeah, so let's, uh, let's go ahead and look at some of these people that Joe has just described, people who have overcame. Um, in chapter 11, uh, 
Joe or Jeff, does somebody just want to grab, I guess, the first seven verses there? Sure. Uh, I'm reading from the New King James. Now, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. For by it, the elders obtained a good testimony. By faith, we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God, so the things which are not, so the things which are seen were not made of things which are visible. By faith, Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained witness that he was righteous, God testifying of his gifts, and though and through it, he being dead still speaks. By faith, Enoch was translated so that he did not see death and was not found because God had translated him. For before his translation, he had this testimony that he pleased God. But without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. By faith, Noah, being divinely warned of things not yet seen, moved with godly fear, prepared an ark for the saving of his household, by which he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness, which is according to faith. What do you all think about that definition of faith in verse 1? What comes to y'all's mind when y'all read that? You know, I would even, I would not even use the word definition of faith so much as it's just a, it's a, it's a statement of what faith does. It, yes. It, faith is assurance of things hoped for, a conviction of things not seen. It's a description of faith. I agree. Accomplishes. Yes. I think the scriptures speak to several different things, different aspects of what faith is. I agree. I don't think this is a singular definition of what faith is, but it is a well, Jeff doesn't like the word definition, but I would just say it's a definition or it's a, it's defining some different qualities or aspects of what having faith in the Lord is. You know, you're going to have faith in the Lord um, for things that are going to happen in the future. And it's despite all evidence in front of us that might look contradictory to that. We believe in God's promises for the future, despite everything in front of us that might look contradictory to that. And all the examples we're about to get into are going to be illustrations of that. God tells them this is the way it's going to be. Even though everything else in front of them doesn't look like that, they still believe God over what they can see. It's sort of a compliment to, and uh, earlier was mentioned Hebrews 3. Hebrews 3.14, the latter part of that, I'll just read the whole verse. For if we become, have, for if, right again. We have become partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end. And so he talks about that we need to hold the beginning of our confidence uh, steadfast. And here I think it's the same principle, uh, Hebrews 3, where we've started, we need to continue that. And then that same idea that this is going to bring us to that believing and the saving of the soul. Um, you know, I, I don't think you mentioned this yet, or if you did, I'm, I'm sorry, I, I missed it. But, you know, the, the, the chapter breaks in Hebrews are so unfortunate. You know, there, there ought to be about two chapters in the book of Hebrews, I think. <laughs> I'm not suggesting that I would do any better, but nearly every chapter begins with the phrase, therefore, or for, you know, a conclusionary term. And so as you pointed out, chapter 10 leads right into 11. Um, but, but that thought, we just cannot separate um, uh, what this faith is. So uh, what do you all think about verse three playing into that definition? What, wouldn't that, isn't that just like a perfect first example of what verse one's talking about? Sure. And, and this idea of we believe what we have not seen, and we're going to see that uh, carried through in some of the examples of people who 
put their trust in God in regard to some things they had never seen before, things that were coming in their future, whereas verse 3 is talking about how things came into existence in our past we've not seen either, but we put our trust in God. Yeah, absolutely. So kind of turning our attention to Abel and Enoch, uh, I, I think there's a lot of really good things that both, both of those verses speak to. But just taking Abel and Enoch, have you all ever thought through just how kind of vastly different Abel and Enoch are? Uh, of course, Abel, he would be kind of known as the first person to like die, like the first person to die and, and first person really to be murdered. And then right next to him is Enoch. And what do we know about Enoch? That he didn't. <laughs> yeah, he didn't die. Uh, God found him to be faithful. And so God took him up. We don't know exactly what all that entails and what all that means, but here's the first one to die or be murdered. And then here's the first one to not die. And yet both of them, they both had faith in the Lord. They, had, they both had faith in God and in his promises, even though everything they looked at in front of them might say the opposite. And so I find those two characters right next to each other rather fascinating. Um, and so he, he wraps up as kind of a semi-conclusion in verse 6. Without faith, it's impossible to please him. Whether you're somebody who's going to die or not die, you have to have faith to please God. And if you want to come to him, you've got to believe in him, believe that he is. I believe that 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 is what it sounds like it is. You got to believe that he is God and uh, that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. Uh, Y'all got any, anything on that? I see we got a comment. Um, PJ says both the naturalist and creationist have to go on faith on how the world was created. Well, yeah, that's, that's right, great, because nobody has point. seen it happen. Nobody has seen it happen. Nobody can duplicate it. We can't go back and watch a videotape of it happening. All, all we can do is, is believe one thing or another about what happened based on whatever evidence we have. And the naturalist, uh, basically, he's in a position of having to conjecture something uh, because he can't believe in a God uh, who created it, whereas the uh, creationist believes in somebody who told us what happened. Uh, why would we believe somebody who told us? Well, because it's somebody who has demonstrated he has uh, the power to control the, the universe. It's somebody who's demonstrated that uh, it is he who controls the universe who speaks to us in scripture. And so we have reason to believe what he says about how it came into existence. Yep. Very good. Uh, verse 7, he brings up Noah. By faith, Noah, he being warned by God about things not yet seen, in reverence prepared an ark for the salvation of his household by which he condemned the world and became an heir of righteousness, which is according to faith. Uh, up into the point of Noah, we actually don't have a record of it actually raining yet. And so can you imagine what it would be like for Noah, for God to come to him and say, Noah, I need you to build this ark. I'm going to flood the earth. You're like, okay, <laughs> how? How are you going to accomplish that? I've not seen rain yet. What do you mean? But the Hebrew writer is making the point, Noah didn't do any of that. God said, build an ark. And Noah said, I'll get started. <laughs> yes, sir. I'll do that. So th that's an interesting thing as to whether God, whether Noah had seen rain or not yet. And maybe he hadn't. And, and <clears throat> let's talk just briefly about the two passages based upon which people draw the conclusion that he had not seen rain. And I'm not sure they say that, but it's interesting at least to consider that and whether or not that's what these passages are saying. One is in Genesis chapter 2 and verse 6, where it says a mist used to rise from the faith from the earth and water the whole surface of the ground. 
it's not clear to me that that is, is saying that's the way the ground was watered from creation until the time of the flood. Maybe it is, I don't know. But the other thing that one could point to is Genesis, the ninth chapter. After the flood, um, when God gives the rainbow is a sign of the covenant that he'll not again destroy the world by water as he did uh, with the flood. It says in Genesis, the ninth chapter and verse uh, 12, God said, this is the sign of the covenant, which I'm making between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all successive generations. I set my bow in the cloud and it shall be for a sign of a covenant between me and the earth. And it shall come about when I bring a cloud over the earth that the bow shall be seen in the cloud. And I will remember my covenant, which is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And never again shall the water become a flood to destroy all flesh. So here's the thing. Of course, talking about a rainbow there. And you can take that, I will set my bow in the cloud, one of two ways. You can take it that there had never been a rainbow prior to this occasion. If there had never been a rainbow prior to this occasion, then things would have had to just been different prior to the flood. The atmosphere would have had to been different. Rainbows happen simply after a rain. You have all that moisture evaporating in the air and light is refracted through it. You get a rainbow. If there had never been a rainbow before this, you would suppose that the atmosphere was different. And then you might suppose, well, maybe it had never rained before this. Although there's another way to take that statement in Genesis 9, and that is that there had been rainbows, but now God establishes it as the sign of the covenant. Yes, there have been rainbows, but now I'm giving new meaning to it. And I'm not sure which way to take that either. I, it's not impossible that there had not been rain before this. Uh, what we do know is Noah had never seen such a thing as was coming in terms of the flood. Correct. Yeah, there, this flood, or sorry, in verse 7, this thing that it says he was warned by God that he had not yet seen, that could still just mean in general the, the flood. And I mean, we, guys, we read about things all the time in the Word that we've not experienced. There are some things God promises that sometimes we're uneasy about because we haven't seen them with our own eyes. But part of having faith is believing God in spite of what we might think is contradic uh, contradictory evidence. Um, yeah, Joe. Well, I just say, whether it's rained or not, I think it's an interesting thing to consider. And I've weighed some of those passages as well. Um, and uh, usually uh, follow along the lines of whoever's presented the last argument. Um, but uh, you know, the, the fact that there's a flood coming that's going to destroy the whole world and that all of these animals are gatherable. You know, I mean, everything about the scenario is absolutely beyond human reasoning. Um, and so it, it is a matter of faith. I, I'm going to trust what God has said. This does not seem like something that, you know, how could I otherwise believe it? Sure. Yeah, guys, uh, any other thoughts through verse seven? All right, well, why don't we uh, go ahead and tackle the bigger chunk here about Abraham. Um, Jeff, why don't you go ahead, if you don't mind, why don't you read verses 8 down to verse, um, I guess, down there to verse 19. <laughs> Beginning in verse 8. By faith, Abraham, when he was called, obeyed to go out unto a place which he was to receive for an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing whither he went. By faith, he became a sojourner in the land of promise, as in a land not his own dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise, for he looked for the city which hath foundations, whose builder and maker is God. 
By faith, even Sarah herself received power to conceive seed when she was past age, since she counted him faithful who had promised. Wherefore also there sprang of one, and him as good as dead, so many as the stars of heaven in multitude, and as the sand, which is by the seashore, innumerable. These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. For they that say such things make it manifest that they are seeking after a country of their own. And if indeed they had been mindful of that country from which they went out, they would have had an opportunity to return. But now they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly Wherefore, God is not ashamed of them to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. By faith, Abraham, being tried, offered up Isaac. Yea, he that had gladly received the promises was offering up his only begotten son, even he to whom it was said, In Isaac shall your seed be called. Accounting that God is able to raise up even from the dead, from whence he did also in a figure receive him back. Thank you, Jeff. Um, it's always so good to just read the word and, and talk about this stuff. Uh, wow, Abraham had tremendous faith, Sarah too. And I, you kind of in the section Jeff just read, you kind of see two or three waves of the faith that Abraham had. Guys, what's that first wave that, that's talked about there in verses eight and on? I tell you what, that's a great demonstration of faith. Uh, I, I can, can hardly imagine uh, what would happen if I just w went home and said to my wife, start packing, we're moving. And the first question would be, where? And as soon as I said, I don't know. Uh, it <laughs> Panic. Panic will ensue. That's there are right. all kinds of questions that she's going to have about, well, we need to know where we I need to know whether we're going to need this or whether we're going to need that. I've got to sort this. I've got to decide, is this worth taking? I need to know where we're going. And Abraham goes and he says, we're moving. I don't know where we're going, but God said go, and so we're going to go. That's faith. I love uh, Simon and Teresa Harris commented, Abraham obeyed, went out, and waited. Waiting is often the hardest part of faith. That's an excellent point. But wow, I am just floored by Abraham's and Sarah's both, their faith in this instance. But it goes back to what the Hebrew writer is trying to describe to his readers back in verse 1. Abraham couldn't see where he was going. He didn't know anything about it. But he believed God that God was going to take care of him. And, of course, that was reckoned to him as righteousness. So, and he obeyed. He went out and did what God asked. So this wow. is, there, there's a parallel here, though. Quite obviously, God has told us we're going. And we really haven't uh, – the greatest – idea in detail of where we're going he's not we don't we've never been there we've never seen where we're going and in faith we put our trust in god and we go assuming that not just assuming but having confidence having faith that god has has something good in mind for us i mean could you not almost replace our name in verse nine by faith chase lived as an alien and well in, in the land and as in a foreign land he dwelt in tents with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs of the same promise. Chase was looking for the city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. I'm looking for that same land that God has promised us. Joe, you were going to say something. Well, it's just imagine the, uh, or don't imagine, but, but consider the contrast 
uh, hear this story of Genesis 11, 27, uh, going into chapter 12. Uh, that follows right on the heels of the story of the scattering of the people in uh, Genesis 11, the Tower of Babel. God told the people to go and uh, to, to spread out. And they said, no, we won't, because they wanted to build a name for themselves. And, and they wanted to make a city for themselves. And uh, Abraham, was, and, and, and they did, infamously, uh, Abraham emptied himself, decided, okay, I'll go. I don't even know where I'm going. He obeyed God. He did develop a name for himself. And in contrast to the people of the Tower of Babel wanting to build a city, verse 10 here, for he waited for the city which has foundations. I think there's just amazing, just a stark contrast between the Tower of Babel people and, and Abraham. Wow, very good point. I had not made that connection before. Kind of on, on the second wave here in this section that Jeff just read for us. So he's out looking for the city, um, and he's wanting the city that has these foundations. And God tells him, hey, by the way, in Genesis 12, uh, you're, you're going to bear, you're going to have a son. Um, you're going to have descendants that, of course, are like the stars of the heaven in number, innumerable as the sand, which is by the seashore. But, of course, guys, what's kind of the problem with that? What's going on with Sarah? She's barren. She's barren. Okay, yet yeah, here is another thing that God has told Abraham, but the evidence in front of him says no. And Abraham has a choice. He, he gets to either believe God despite of what the evidence is in front of him or try and do things his own ways. And we actually see him try to take both roads that I just described. But nonetheless, the example of him going ahead and putting his faith in the Lord after a couple of mis, mis, uh, after a couple of misfires, we learn that God does open up Sarah's womb and he does have Isaac. And uh, we'll move on to the third wave of faith in just a second. That's connected to Isaac. Thoughts or comments on that? I think it's interesting. We talk about Sarah and how, you know, the manner of women was no longer upon her, I think, as the King James Version says. And so she's postmenopausal, and she is about 90 years old when Isaac is born. But also Abraham. Um, the language here in Hebrews chapter 11, uh, verse... Um, Oh, we read it just a minute ago. Verse 12. Verse 12. Also, there sprang of one of in him as good as dead. And then there's the language back in Romans, the fourth chapter, where Paul says, uh, verse 19, without being weakened in faith, he considered his own body now as good as dead. Um, I don't know. Uh, we know that Abraham was able to father a child uh, 13 years prior to the birth of, uh, uh, well, 13 years prior to the conception of Isaac, uh, when with Hagar, uh, he, he fathered a child, Ishmael. Uh, but there's also that language in Genesis, the 18th chapter, uh, when Sarah hears that she's going to have a child, and uh, let's see... Uh, verse 12, Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I become old, shall I have pleasure, my Lord being old also. So you wonder, was it in fact that not only Sarah, but also Abraham, 
at his age was not capable of fathering a child. And they both had to put their faith in God and say, you know, he said, we're going to have a child. So, okay, let's give it a go. And uh, of course, later on, then Abraham does have other children by Keturah, assuming that that's told chronologically. And yet it could be that God blessed him with the ability uh, to function thereafter. But it just, it's something that I, I guess until, I guess for a lot of years, it just had not occurred to me that perhaps neither of them was capable um, and that they were really putting their trust in God. Right. And not only that, just the, the sheer ability to raise a kid in your old age would, would oh, oh, yeah. be difficult. Oh, yeah. well, what do you guys um, think? Maybe you guys have other thoughts. Do you, do you think there's anything to that? Or do you think that, no, that that's not talking about Abraham's ability to father a child. He, um, what, what do you think? I think you, you mentioned uh, Romans 4, 19, even going back to verse 17, as it is written, I have made him a father of many nations in the presence of him who he believed, even God, who gives life to the dead and calls those things which do not exist as though they did, who contrary to hope and hope believes so that he might become the father of many nations. That, that whole text is talking about the birth of Isaac, uh, not of bringing Isaac back from the dead. A lot of times people will I think, jump that to Genesis 22. I think he's referring to that whole idea of that which was dead and so forth is Abraham's ability to bear children. I, uh, I agree, yes. <laughs> I'll ride the fence on this one, guys. Um, no, I, I think that's a good discussion, though. Um, Y'all have anything else to say about that? No, we were waiting for your wisdom. You think you'll be waiting a while. You'll be waiting as long as Abraham. <laughs> but I, have I do think that it is important that we keep in mind that while we're talking about these men and women of faith, we're not talking about perfection. You, you mentioned some of the, the vacillating and, and wavering of, of Abraham's faith, even uh, during the time with Hagar and, and other situations. We're, we're not talking about a perfect faith, which I think some people live in fear of not having, but, but we need to be descendants of, of Abraham. Uh, yes. Sons and daughters of Abraham. But let me tie off of that and leading into kind of the third wave of Abraham's faith in this section. Faith is something that we apply from looking at the past deliverances of God. When Abraham goes up on Mount Moriah and goes to sacrifice his son Isaac, again, God is asking him to do something that looks like a, uh, it's contradicting something God has already said. You know, all of your descendants are going to come through Isaac, and now I have to kill him? But when you read Genesis 22, Abraham goes through with it. And this verse tells us that he believed God was just going to raise him back from the dead. That's how much faith he had in God. But again, think about the things that Abraham has went through in his life up into the point of Mount Moriah. God has asked him to leave his homeland, leave everything he knows behind, and he goes, and God takes care of him. Abraham has been told, you're going to have a son through Sarah. And even though it didn't look that way, God made it happen. And so by the time it got to Mount Moriah, Abraham was there in his faith. He was ready to do it. And that's what we need to remember in trial. When we get to a new trial or something tough in our life, 
think about all the other times God has delivered you and let that encourage you in your faith to trust God in the future. And that's a huge lesson to learn. We, we ask the question, how is it that I can build my faith? You take note of every time God has delivered you in the past and you apply that to your future and your present circumstance. That's how we continue to build our faith. And Abraham, I think, is a prime example of that. Our Genesis 12 Abraham is a much different man from the Genesis 22 Abraham. All right, guys. Well, for time's sake, I think we need to keep plugging along. Um, of course, verses 20 to 22 discuss the sons of, of Abraham. Um, you'll have Isaac and Jacob, and then it'll even mention Joseph. I wish we could spend some time on that. But then we get into some Moses um, by faith examples. I'm going to pick up in verse 23. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw he was a beautiful child, and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to endure ill treatment with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, considering the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. By faith, he left Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is unseen. By faith, he kept the Passover and the sprinkling of the blood so that he who destroyed the firstborn would not touch them. By faith, they passed through the Red Sea as though they were passing through dry land and the Egyptians, when they attempted it, were drowned. You know, I would say if you were going to make a list of Jewish ancestors and forefathers and uh, you were to look at the, the people in Hebrews uh, that the Hebrew writers writing to and say, hey, find a guy on this list that you can relate to. Do you think Moses would be on that list for them? I don't think so. He was the one that led us out of Egypt. He's the one that took us out. But I think Moses is the most obvious one that relates to all these Jewish Christians situation. I mean, he has just stated back in chapter 10, how that they have already had the property seized. They've been taken out of their homeland. They've been taken out of what's most comfortable. And yet Moses went through the same exact thing, a man they would have looked up to. Hmm. Joe? Good point. Good, no, good, good point. Yeah, it's not obvious uh, uh, for us particularly, um, and, and maybe it wouldn't have been for them if they hadn't kept it in context, but he is making some very clear connections for them, yeah. Well, and he's already talked about how they've endured through ill treatment and how there are going to be other brethren who endure through ill treatment. And that same word is used there in verse 25, that Moses chose to endure ill treatment with the people of God rather than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. Any other thoughts or comments on Moses? We're, we'll talk more in depth about him in a second when we get to talk about Jesus. All right, um, Joe, why don't you go ahead and read for us verses 30. Uh, down, if you don't mind, to verse 40. Okay. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they were encircled for seven days. By faith, the harlot Rahab did not perish with those who did not believe when she had received the spies with peace. What more shall I say? For the time would fail me to tell of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah, also of David and Samuel, the prophets, who through faith subdued kingdoms, worked righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the violence of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, out of weakness were made strong, became valiant in battle, turned to flight the armies of the aliens. Women received their dead, raised to life again. Others were tortured, not accepting deliverance, that they might obtain a better resurrection. Still others had trial of mockings and scourgings, yes, of chains and imprisonment. 
They were stoned, they were sawn in two, were tempted, were slain with a sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, inflicted, tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts and mountains and dens and caves of the earth. And all of these, having obtained a good testimony through faith, not received the promise, God having provided something better for us, that they should not be made perfect apart from us. Hey, wow. Uh, time would fail us if we slowed down and went through all the stories and all the wonderful examples of the faith. But um, I, I, I got to say, guys, in the list that Joe just read for us, there are some impressive people. The stories of David and Samuel and especially Rahab the harlot, some of these others are, are just impressive to me. And I see the faith in their stories. But then there's guys like Barak and Samson and Jephthah and Gideon. And you go, why are these guys on this list? They're no Abraham. They're, they're no Moses. Why are they on here? But if you go back to Rahab, maybe you have a little bit of a clue. You know, people sometimes, they, they have problems with Rahab because she, she lied. And it's, it's just plain, she lied. She was a harlot. Sometimes people have problems with that. Here's what you have in Rahab. You have a woman who doesn't know all of God's ways. She doesn't know all of God's word. But what she does know is this God is powerful and she wants to submit to him. And so much is she choosing to be on his side that she is willing to, to leave, to be separated from, to have a different faith than all her society. All her city is going to be destroyed. She is willing to go and be a part of another nation. Um, she's, she's a Canaanite. She is living amongst the city of the people in the city of Jericho. That's her life, her home. All of that's going to be gone. And she's willing to give all of that up and cast her lot with a people she really doesn't know because she has that much faith in God. And what that, that is says, right. what that says is, I may start out not knowing what's right to do in this situation or that. Uh, but if I'm putting my trust in the one who will lead me in the right ways, I'm headed the right direction. So then we come to some people like Samson or Jephthah or even Gideon in whom it's easy to see serious failings, serious flaws. In fact, as you read through the book of Judges, it just seems that as you go, as you progress through the book, each leader becomes less exemplary and less exemplary. And it is kind of stunning at first glance to, to see these names here held up as examples of faith. And yet, Saying somebody is an example of faith is not saying that he understood it all or got it all right, but it is saying he knew, maybe to use his, use a, I'm not sure this expression is, is applicable here, but we'll try it. He knew which side his bread was buttered on. He knew who the one was that he should follow. And if they didn't always get that perfectly and they didn't always know what was right and what was wrong and how to make some of the distinctions that they should have made, it's, it's encouraging to me that God still saw them as faithful. Amen. And that's the thing about faith. When we put our trust and our, our belief in the Lord, we're relying on his power, not our own. We're saying, I trust in what he can do through me. And I think that's the big point here. All of these people, that's what they had in common. They were trusting in God's power to save, God's ability to work in their lives. And so whether it's Gideon or whether it's uh, Moses, they were all trusting in the same God to be the one that delivers them. And that's the whole thing uh, about faith is you put it in the Lord, not yourself. And so 
all of these are great examples um, that all ultimately, and that's what we're leading to, point to Jesus Christ. Um, Jeff, do you mind to go ahead and read chapter 12, 1 through 3 for us? Chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. Um, Therefore, let us also, seeing we are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, lay aside every weight and the sin which doth so easily beset us, and let us run with patience or endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising shame, and it sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him that has endured such gainsaying of sinners against himself, that you wax not weary, fainting in your souls. Here's what I hope we can accomplish for everyone that's listening to this podcast, is that you learn to ignore this chapter break between chapter 11 and 12. And when you think of the, the faith hall of fame, you remember that the end of that list is Jesus Christ. That's the Hebrew writer's whole point. He's saying Jesus is the greater fulfillment of all these things. Yes, we have this cloud of witnesses surrounding us, encouraging us to run the race set before us. So let's not get bogged down. But in verse two, let's fix our eyes on Jesus. He's the author and perfecter of faith. We've been talking about by faith. He's the one that perfects faith. He's the perfect example of it. He endured the cross, despised the shame. He sat down at the right hand of God. You consider him. Consider the faith that he had in God. And every single one of the characters or Bible people that we work through in chapter 11, they all just foreshadow what Jesus would be. And guys, you all run, take it from here. What are some of the ones that stand out to you that are ultimately pointing to Jesus? Well, I think one of the things, uh, go ahead, Jeff. Oh, go ahead, Joe. Well, I was going to say that for all of these individuals, there are various things that could have been said about them but the way that these things are said is clearly pointing it to Jesus. Notice, for example, in verse four, talking about Abel, um, uh, he was righteous, and though he being dead still speaks. Uh, that's Jesus. That, that, that really is. It, it's almost as if he's, he's looking at Jesus through the, through the person of, of Abel. Uh, Enoch, in, in verse five, um, uh, he was not found because God had translated him. That's perfectly Jesus. Why did that happen? Because he had received the testimony previously that he pleased God. Think about Jesus' baptism on the Mount of Transfiguration. This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Uh, Noah uh, saved his household, condemned the world, became the heir of righteousness. Uh, that's exactly Jesus. Uh, Abraham in, in uh, verse 8 uh, he would receive the, this place as an inheritance. That's what Jesus came to do, is that very thing. Uh, yeah, great. Yeah. Go Keep going. Keep going, Joe. Uh, well, um, uh, thinking about the uh, uh, idea of the, the city with foundations, he'll talk about that over in chapter 12 as well. Um, Verse 12, talking about Abraham, that he would receive as many as the stars, the sky, and multitude innumerable, talking about God's people, I think, but spiritually speaking. Um, uh, he mentions the heavenly country in verse 16. And then um, what was the there's one that I really wanted to make sure I noted? Um, uh, verse 17, 
the, the language, offered up Isaac, who had received the promise, offered up his only begotten son. You know, that idea of only begotten son there in verse 17, similar to John 3, 16. And yet, technically, it wasn't his only son. Who does that really fit? It really fits God and, and Jesus. Um, uh, and so just all of the language is just really pointing to, uh, to the Lord. Um, I think maybe the one that really, really gets me is verse 28, talking about Moses. Notice mm -hmm. the sounds. By faith, he kept the Passover and the sprinkling of blood, lest he who destroyed the firstborn should touch them. You would think that those pronouns would match. Who kept the Passover? The Israelites did so that they wouldn't be touched by the destroyer. Or Moses kept the Passover so that he wouldn't. You would think the pronouns would match. They don't. I was just going to say another Moses one that I have here on, on my chart. It, Moses, he gives up royalty. He gives up spending time with all these royal, uh, with the Pharaoh, with all these other people, so that he can go what? Yeah. Deliver God's people. Absolutely. Jesus leaves heaven. Why? So he can go deliver God's people from bondage. Yeah. It, it, it's a tremendous chapter when we look for Jesus, which is exactly what the Hebrew writer tells us to do in chapter 12 and verse 2. Yeah, that's exactly right. Um, and so this chart is not complete. I would encourage everyone who's watching to make your own chart and make all your own connections here uh, because there are far more there. But it is a, it is a beautiful story. Um, all of the Old Testament is a shadow of the things to come. And the substance, of course, is Christ, Colossians 2.17. So um, I hope this has been encouraging for everyone that's watching. I know every time I get to go through Hebrews 11, it's encouraging to me. But my admonition to everyone is remember that chapter 12 is included in that. It all points to Jesus. Well, we're out of time today, guys. Uh, thank you all for your comments and your uh, your attention. We'll go ahead and wrap up there. We'll see everyone, Lord willing, next Wednesday.